Good evening. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome two distinguished guests to talk about King Lear, An Imperfect Mind. Um, on my left, well, they're both on my left, on my far left is Mike Greerley, who is a practicing psychoanalyst and past president of the British Psychoanalytical Society. And on my immediate left is Laurie McGuire, who's professor of English literature at Magdalen College, Oxford, and author of, I think, nine books on Shakespeare. Is that correct? And another one coming up any, any moment That's on right. Othello. Yes. Um, can I start, Mike, by asking you specifically about King Lear and whether you think Shakespeare's Lear, when you read it or when you see it, reveals an extraordinary clinical understanding of the process of madness? I think he does. Uh, I think he shows, and, and I think this production shows it very brilliantly, he shows um, Lear's despotic madness at the beginning and the way he's been with his family. And we get a sense of it not only from what Regan and Goneril tell us, but from what we see on the stage. And we see his uh, incredible anger, his narcissism. Um, it's got to be now, his dinner. He can't wait for a minute. Uh, and, and the way he treats people, the way he, he um, works up his rage into a kind of frenzy, almost as if, he's, as if there's a sexual or an excited pleasure in it. You know, the way he can take off on an idea and become more and more angry. And I think that it, as the play goes through, Shakespeare shows, uh, shows him uh, getting, in a sense, more sane as he becomes more mad. I mean, he, he gives up some of that defensive structure that has got him through in this autocratic way, and he becomes more vulnerable, more uh, regretful, more open to others, he lets, invites the fool and Edgar to go into the hovel before him. So I think he shows a process of change which also runs the risk of a more um, colourful madness. Right. That's, we'll come back to that. I love that idea of despotic madness from the beginning. Laurie, where would you assume Shakespeare learnt about madness? I mean, do we have any evidence of uh, medical books he would have had access to? Was it observation? Where do you think Shakespeare's understanding, clinical understanding of madness comes from? I think Shakespeare's very interested in medicine from the start of his career and in madness. I mean, what Mike's just described in King Lear, you see in Titus, that kind of clear-eyed sanity uh, as you're losing your marbles. Uh, but Shakespeare's contemporaries uh, found madness a theatrical spectacle for ridicule for comedy. You could go to Bedlam on a Sunday and poke your fingers at the madman. Uh, and Webster stages that, obviously, in Duchess of Malfi. Uh, but in the 1590s, um, Shakespeare moved round the corner from the Barber Surgeon's Hall. Um, and I think he gets very interested in medicine when barbers and surgeons are his neighbours. And I think throughout his, his, his canon, you can see him clocking various kinds of medical illnesses. Uh, and here, madness is part of the old age. I mean, the word old is stressed an incredible number of times in this play, both by good characters and by bad characters. You know, you're old, you should be wise. Uh, you're old, you should act uh, appropriately. Um, he says, look, I'm old, why don't you respect me? Uh, so there's an incredibly interesting anxiety about what might attend on old age. Mike, you said that he starts with despotic madness and then acquires a kind of sanity almost. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, what always strikes me about King Lear whenever I sit, and particularly in this production and Simon's performance, is the 
violent contradictoriness mm -hmm. of his behaviour. And it's almost line by line. I mean, mm -hmm. just quoting three lines, he says to Goneril, his daughter, farewell, we'll no more meet. Next line, but yet thou art my flesh, my blood, my daughter. The next line, or rather a disease that's in my flesh. Mm. Is that a classic symptom of mental disturbance, this sort of violent oscillation? Well, uh, I think it is, but I think one can also be have a fertile imagination that's not mad or despotic, that moves from one idea to another quickly. Uh, but I think he does move very fast between different ideas. He also perseverates in ideas. I mean, I've already said he, he gets off on his anger, but he perseverates, obviously, as he gets conventionally madder, he's more and more on about, you know, when he meets Edgar, he says, are you suffering from ungrateful daughters? You must be. You know, it's the only idea he has in his head, but it's become the central idea of his, of his mind. So he also perseverates and keeps stubbornly on at things. I think you're right, he does have both. And that line you just quoted is, I think, a very sort of belated, penny-dropping moment where he thinks, oh my goodness, these girls are a chip off the old block. They are like me. The obstinacy of Cordelia is me. I am looking at myself. Do you think contradiction is at the heart of this play, or to put it another way, senselessness. I mean, there's a wonderful uh, critic called Eric Benthy who says in The Life of the Drama, the thing about King Lear is that it, it makes no sense. It is literally senseless. And he quotes classic contradictions, you know. Um, the gods are just and of our pleasant vices make instruments to plague us, and then lines that completely contradict that, you know, saying as flies to wanton boys are we to gods. Is that, do you think, at the essence of this play? Well, we all have those ideas, don't we? I mean, we sometimes feel the one and we sometimes feel the other. But I think Lear is not, is not senseless. I mean, he is contradictory. He's entitled to everything. Like, you, as you said, he's entitled to respect because he's old. He thinks he deserves it just like that because of who he is and because he's old. Um, and, and his entitlement comes through in various ways. But he does change. And, um, well, I've said that. He also starts to see the problems of the ordinary man. He suddenly sees what it's like to be poor, to, to, to lack necessities, and to, for, for, for vile things to be precious, like straw, if you're cold. You know, he suddenly sees these things. He sees the hypocrisy of the rich and the powerful, you know, the third judges and the people who lash the prostitutes back, or whatever it is, but actually lust after her themselves. I mean, he sees that more and more as the play goes on. I think he opens his eyes as the, uh, as the external eyes of Gloucester go out, uh, his ordinary old eyes go out, and he sees in a new way. So do, you, do you subscribe to that, this idea that there is a sanity within the madness of King Lear? Well, I think that the whole play is almost a, a process of negation, and the further that Lear moves from the throne room, the further he moves from the map room, when he actually loses his family, loses his position, loses his clothes, loses his sanity, the more he gains, the more he, he finds himself. The question that he insistently, repeatedly asks is, who is it who can tell me who I am? Mm -hmm. uh, and he thought he knew that in Act One, Scene One. He thought he was King Lear and the father of loving daughters. So Goneril and Regal didn't, Regan didn't think he knew that. He has but slenderly mm -hmm. known himself. That's right. And they, um, I mean, it's often too easy to play them as the ugly sisters mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the wicked mm -hmm. baddies, mm -hmm. but they have some extraordinary 
perspicacious yes. statements yes. about he's always been like this mm. and now he's getting older, it's getting worse. And we better watch out for it. It's, it's that incredibly painful, postponed conversation that uh, we didn't want to talk, have this conversation about what to do with dad, mm. but now mm. we have to have it. Yes, um, I, I thought that um, they say it would have been better if you had been, uh, if you surrounded yourself with wiser people than your hundred nights, your hundred mm -hmm. riotous nights, you know, that, that's what would be more appropriate to your age, you know, if you were like that. Uh, and one feels they're entirely reasonable until they start, also like him, to get more and more extreme. Mm -hmm. And Regan, of course, is the one who, you know, if there's one eye to be put out, she'll have another. <laughs> and I think, I mean, Everything that happens in this play, or has happened before it starts, happens in the opening scene. Mm. And there are, in a way, two layers. There's the majestic layer, there's the king layer, mm. and if you focus on that in production, that's a layer who does things to people. Mm -hmm. And there's Lear who's the father, mm -hmm. and if you focus on that in production, then the focus is on what is done to Lear. And the brilliance of this production mm. Mm. is that it manages to intertwine the two mm. and shows that one is dependent on the other. Uh, how Lear's been as a monarch yes. is, is how he's been as a father, yeah. and they're indivisible. And he may be, as he says, and like Othello, more sinned against than sinning, but he's still sinning. I also think, though, that he's incredibly vulnerable. Yes. And I think that he disguises that vulnerability yes. by being tyrannical, by so being autocratic. I. Can I quote, yeah. I just wanted to quote something which I think is, is exactly what you're saying, but I think it also sums up a psychoanalytic view, actually, of the mind, which is, it's Gloucester who says, better I were distract, so should my thoughts be severed from my griefs and, and woes by wrong imaginations lose the knowledge of themselves. By which I think he means, if you can't be in access to your vulnerability and your griefs, your losses, your difficulties, the things you lack, Mm -hmm. then wrong imaginations take over and you lose knowledge of yourself. Now, you might escape from some suffering in that way, but you lose, you're distract. You're distract, you're mad. You're mad. Yes. You're, you're di but he's more mad at the beginning, you see, in that sense. He's more cut off from his griefs. He's angry, he's not aggrieved. He's not, no, he's, not he's aggrieved, he's not grieving. Mm -hmm. Um, but by the end, he is, there's something closer to grief in this man. Can I come back to the point you made right at the beginning, Mike, which is a very interesting point. You know, you talked about uh, a progress towards sanity, var madness, in fact, in, mm. in the play, which is very interesting. And I just want to take the Heath scene, for example, famously, where Lear and Gloucester confront each other. And again, what, what strikes me is violent contradictions, because mm. one moment Lear yes. is obsessed, is he not, yes. by sexuality yes. and by what lies, you know, beneath beneath yeah. the waist, etc., yeah. and, and becomes sort of madly preoccupied with that. The next moment he's making perfectly safe social observations, as yes. you said about the hypocrisy of yes. social structures. Yes. And then that great moment, he suddenly says, I know thee well enough, my name is Gloucester. Yeah. I mean, again, d does all that ring true psychoanalytically to you, these extraordinary yes. Yes, it violent does. oscillations? It does, it rings true, and it, and it certainly rings true of Lear, because he's like that all the way through. As you say, mm -hmm. he shows there, is, there are signs of his vulnerability early on, even though they're harder to see. Uh, and there's certainly this oscillation between moments of insight, I might call it moments of concern, moments of a position in which he can feel that he's done something wrong, he's contributed to all this, he's partly to blame, and moments where everything in the world is against him, they're coming down on his poor white head, and he's making a great 
play. I, I wanted to say something about the, uh, all the lust stuff in that scene, mm -hmm. and I wondered if it's to do, in part, with the excitement he gets from his victim role, you know, his victim rage. Yes. You know, that there's almost a, a sexualized excitement from it. As for Reagan, of course. Mm. Yes, it suddenly seems, doesn't it, a, a, a bizarre moment. It comes in other plays, too, doesn't it? It comes in part in Trollis and Cresta, you know, this sudden ferocious anatomy of human beings below the waist. Yes, let them anatomize Reagan, let in fact, he says, and find out what cause makes these hard hearts, what cause in nature makes these hard hearts. I mean, anatomize is a technical term for doing a medical, a surgical dissection. There are four public anatomies per year at Barbara Surgeons Hall, and they're spectacular forms of theater, in mm. fact, and I think Shakespeare clocked them as theater, and that's the first uh, uh, use of that verb in his vocabulary, and and you know. And of course, it was called the theatre, wasn't it? It is still called the, the operating theatre. The operating theatre, yes. Um, but I mean, going back to the Heath scene, I have no idea how actors remember those lines. How does Simon Russell Beale keep those violent uh, changes of, of logic? Um, and the. The thing that struck me in this production was the sort of loss of inhibition. Simon Russell Beale's got a great thing going on with the scratching, mm -hmm. uh, and that completely disinhibited old man who's now not got any veneer of, of um, public behaviour uh, is haunting. There's, there's an interesting thing which I don't at all understand, which is the hysterica passio. He ah. refers to a hysterical passion, mm. which is coming up to his heart, mm -hmm. but it belongs down below, he yes. says. Yes, yes almost like um, a Freud, early Freud view of hysteria, that it's due to sexual origins and, the, and the, some of the symptoms are in the throat or the chest, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, and and it, it's, it's as if Shakespeare knew all that too, or, the, or, the, or maybe the psychologists of the day. Well, they did. I mean, this is, this is Elizabethan Jacobean understanding of hysteria as mm. wandering womb. Wandering womb. Uh, yes. And what's so interesting is there is actually a source play that Shakespeare rewrote for this play called King Lear, uh, spelt King L-E-I-R, um, and that play starts with the funeral of the mother, Mrs. Lear, oh. Queen Lear, um, and the play is full of statements saying, well, I've got to be really careful about my daughters now because they don't have a mother, mm. and how will I choose husbands for my daughters because mm. the mother's not there to help with advice for them. Mm. And all mm. that mm. Um, plot, mm. if you like, in the source mm. play goes into the vocabulary yes. in, in Shakespeare's play. In fact, this play. passion is called the mother, isn't it's it? It's called the well? mother, yes. He says yes. the mother is, is a, you know, he's... Yeah, uh, is, yeah and, and suffocating mm. him. Mm. Mike, yeah. you were talking about these Freudian insights that Shakespeare has. And I remember sitting mm. on the same stage and talking to you about Sophocles. Mm. Well, he had them Fro too. Freud. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, about Sophocles anticipating mm. Freudian discoveries. Mm. And now mm. you're implying that Shakespeare does something. I mean, was Shakespeare, well, I must be, was, he, was he a pre-Freudian, as it were? Well, I mean, I, I've mentioned a couple of things which, I mean, I, didn't, I don't approach it like that. I don't say, where's the Freud in Shakespeare? No, but no. but when, when I see and read Lear, I do get a sense of this understanding. Well, there's also the Heath, the wild place, the place outside the civilized city, like the wood in Midsummer Night's Dream or uh, the forest in Macbeth, Burnham Wood in Macbeth, where, um, where these wild things can happen. Mm -hmm. Wild, confusing, chaotic disturbing things that come up from the unconscious. 
This is the point, isn't it? I mean, mm. I mean, Shakespeare did not have access to the British Psychoanalytic Society. Sadly, he, but he seems to have had insights, doesn't yeah. he, that, that anticipate later discoveries. Is that right? Shakespeare is interested in humans with the bonnets up. He likes the yes. broken down. He likes yes. the car engine that's not yes. going smoothly. Um, and we kind of take that psychological interest for granted as what Renaissance dramatists do. Uh, in fact, it seems to me it's a peculiarly Shakespearean interest. Um, the human heart, the human mm. family, mm. making relations, losing you know, status, losing parents. Um, it's mm -hmm. from the beginning of his canon to the end. So mm. I, think, mm. I think it's a, a, a sort of a niche that Shakespeare cornered. Do you think he has a peculiar fixation with madness or obsession with madness? Because it recurs time and again, doesn't it? I mean, Hamlet quite obviously puts on an antic disposition. Tysandronicus, you mentioned earlier, you know, that's mm. again about sanity and madness. Even in the comedies, I mean, Twelfth mm. Night, Malvolio is famously incarcerated on false charges of madness. Mm. It runs like a seam, doesn't it? Right from Shakespeare's work. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's incredibly stageable, but you also get the, um, the Sebastians of the world in Twelfth Night saying, well, I'm going to embrace this madness, actually, mm. and it's a very positive thing. Mm. I mean, I think it comes perhaps, uh, you know, if we drew a Venn diagram of that interest, it's, it's the circle in the middle of the large circle of the imagination. And the imagination can be very positive, and the imagination can mm. go wrong. Mm -hmm. And madness is when mm. what you are seeing or feeling has gone wrong, what you're envisaging is back to front. Well, for Shakespeare, Shakespeare it's I'm, I'm not sure it is here. I mean, the forgeries of jealousy, Titania yes, accuses yes, Oberon well of. You're making, you know, the forgeries of imagination. Jealousy is, is seeing things wrongly. But at the end of this, towards the end of this play, um, Cordelia and and and, and um, Kent see Lear as only mad for a while, yeah. whereas I think Edgar sees him as reason and impertinency mixed, mixed. Um, which of course is what yeah. is said of Hamlet too. Well, Hamlet's only mad with the winds north, northwesterly, whatever it yeah. is, northwesterly. And I think the madness is interesting because of the vulnerability, actually. Yes. And if we can go right back to that opening scene, um, King Lear is at two transitional moments. One is losing his status as you know, a professional in the world, mm -hmm. and what is one's identity when you don't have the day job anymore. The other is losing his youngest daughter, in marriage, yes. uh, what is his identity as a father when he's now got three daughters who have flown the nest? Um, and later on in the play, when he says, you know, let me not go mad, and he repeats it, and he also repeats it as a variant, not mm. that, mm. it's as if, um, I mean, probably for most people, there's one thing they dread about old age, whether it's poverty or loneliness or illness. Um, this production makes very clear that that is the one thing that, that Lear has dreaded, mm -hmm. and now his worst nightmare mm -hmm. is happening to him. And the way Simon Russell Beale loads that with mm -hmm. a whole back history, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, just adds to the vulnerability of that dementia. Do you think Cordelia is reprehensible in her obdurate Ob yes. you know, obstinate integrity or not? I, um, yes, I mean, she's, <laughs> she's a stubborn teenager who misreads that situation, uh, that when Lear, 
when Lear is losing his public sense of worth, taking early retirement, if you like, he is taking steps to legislate that he has worth. Which of my daughters, what can you say, who loves us most? Um, that's how Antony and Cleopatra begins. You know, Cleopatra wants to know, uh, you know how much she is loved. Mm -hmm. And Antony gives the answer that Cordelia should have given, which is there's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. Yeah. Uh, you know, I cannot count it. Mm. Um, but Lear has a very accountancy view of this. You know, mm. 100 nights mm. is twice 50 nights, mm. uh, 50 is twice 25, therefore Goneril's yes. love is, or Regan's love is twice uh, Goneril's or vice versa. And that's why I say when this is a, a play so about negation, it keeps taking things away and saying, but now how do you feel? And then he comes back again a little later and he says, but reason not the need. Yes. So he suddenly yeah. realises or, or comes to see that you can't reason it out and calculate yeah. it in that sort of way. Yeah. You can't anatomise it or, well not in that way. Yeah, exactly. Not numerically. Yeah. And so going back to your question about Cordelia, um, all that was required of her was to make a statement of love, not yeah. a statement of principle, yes. not a statement of ethics. Yes. Um, and she stands up for her principal belief, which is what young people do, but it's not appropriate in that situation. Yes, there was a <coughs> critic years ago who used to refer to as the gormless Cordelia. He said she liked gumption, that was the word, gumption, and yeah, it, it said yeah. she does. Can I come back to one other thing we haven't really touched on yet, Mike, which always moves me in performance, and that is Lear's anticipation of madness. Yes. He keeps saying this, doesn't he, to yes, the he fool? Does. Oh, let me not be mad. Yes, he does. And it always moves one, yes. uh, uh, as the actor says it. Is, it. is it, again, a clinically observable fact? Do people have those apprehensions? I think sometimes they do. You know, they know there's a vulnerability. I mean, one of the things I was thinking of just now while you were talking, uh, uh, well, nothing will come of nothing, and there's quite a lot about nothingness, too. Yes. A zero, um, he, he, he's paired his wits at the side, there's nothing left in the middle. Mm. Uh, there's a sort of sense of emptiness there, I think, that, he, that he he's covered over with his, with his authoritarianism and his power. Um, and I think he is worried about what's going to happen if, he lets g if anything of that gets undone mm -hmm. by the fool uh, and by circumstance and by life and old age. So mm -hmm. I think, yes, it, makes, it does ring true. Do you think also our understanding of the play has inevitably got richer with time because obviously actors, directors are now bringing to the play, aren't they? Uh, you know, forensic studies of dementia and how it works. Do, do, you think, mm -hmm. do you think we are fortunate really in the early 21st century, you know, because we're now bringing scientific knowledge to the play in a way I presume 19th century actors probably didn't? Um, that's true, and we're also bringing social knowledge of the context of old age, not just the dementia. Um, so not only is this play full of references to, to old age, it's full of references to beggars, and it's full yes. of references to the homeless. Yeah, yes. And the Olivier stage peoples itself with the beggars and the homeless, and that, you know, that's what motivates Edgar's disguise as a homeless person and he fits right in with the other homeless. So it's part of a whole nexus of afflictions mm. um, that, that affect, um, that make people wounded uh, socially and mentally. I, I'm not personally convinced about the dementia. I mean, I, uh, to men or Lewis body disease, which is what um, Sam and Simon, Sam Mendes and Simon Russell Beals speak about, because I think that there's plenty of evidence that he's been like this for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And there's also the fact that he does change in the course of the play. And 
some things fall away or become less, mm. as we've said. Um, I think it, it physically, um, well, p some people won't have seen it yet, but physically, um, Simon is fantastic. And, and the use of those observations of people uh, who may be suffering from dementia helps the characterization. There's something about him almost being Richard III at the beginning. And mm -hmm. there's something also about that terrible anxiety that you can see. I mean, I remember once somebody saying about a person in a psychological ward, a psychiatric ward, uh, Owen and Freud said it, that if, they don't, if, if pe patients don't speak with their mouths, they speak with their hands or their bodies. And you know, I remember this person talking about someone's hands speaking. And they were going like this, I believe. You know, that's the so there's something about the expression through the body of psychological disturbance, mm. which I think comes through very well. And there's a larger um, suffering of which the dementia might be a part. And uh, Lear has um, psychological cruelty inflicted upon him. Gloucester has physical mm. cruelty inflicted upon him. Uh, it's the only Shakespeare tragedy that's got a subplot, mm -hmm. and it's a subplot that mirrors exactly yes. the main plot, yes. where you've got a father uh, with children. And so we as the audience get the suffering doubled up, if yes. you like. I mean, that, that line that Lear has in, in the Heath, pour on, I will endure, is pretty much the reader's or the audience's yes. experience of reading this play. It's as if yes. Shakespeare thought of all the worst things yes. that you could do yes. to a human being and put them in two plots in one play. So he exposes the audience to the same. I mean, it's quite yeah. a cruel play for the audience, isn't it? Don't you think? You have to endure. It as is. you said, we have to mm. endure. I, I <coughs> yes, with age, I find it getting harder to yeah. watch, actually, yeah. as I get nearer to Lear's <laughs> age. Um, <Yeah. laughs> But that, that I mean, just on, on the subplot, that raises another point, um, because it's a play where I find the subplot almost requires too much weight, and mm. also the behaviour I find even harder to interpret than in the main plot. I'm talking about Edgar and poor Tom, fundamentally, mm. and I find Edgar's behaviour in the mm. action yes. inexplicable, yeah. and particularly, and it's much discussed, I know his, his failure to reveal his yeah. identity to his yeah. father. Do yeah. you find that... No, I found the same thing. Obstacle? I found the same thing, and I, I have a feeling that Shakespeare got, gets cluttered by the second plot towards the end of the play, and, and, and not to mention the plots about uh, France invading and all of that, yes, yes. which tends, I think in this play it was more understandable. Perhaps I know the play mm. better, in this production I meant. Yes. But I think he does get a bit cluttered by it. But I think um, he's interested in the parallel. And I think earlier on, you get a, a strong sense of it where it does make a lot of sense mm -hmm. along the lines you're... Yeah, um, I mean, saying. two points in relation to that. One is the moment of Edgar's cruelty to his father. I mean, there he is helping yes. his wounded father. Uh, Gloucester says, if I could only see my son Edgar again, I'd, I'd say I had my By eyes. Touch, yes. And this is Edgar's moment to say, well, you know yes. what? Yes. <laughs> Here and I am. And he says nothing. Yes. And he says nothing. Yes. And Edgar's had a very bad press for that because yes. actually... It just adds cruelty. Yes. And it, it's inexplicable. I mean, there are many yes. things uh, that are inexplicable in this play yes. in terms of just putting on torture. I think the only way to explain it is dramatic, um, that Shakespeare is holding a reconciliation scene in reserve. Right. You can't do two reconciliation scenes. Mm. Um, in The Winter's Tale, the reconciliation of father and daughter mm. is narrated right. because he's saving the audience's emotions uh, for husband and wife. But um, going back to the subplot, mm. I mean, in this Jacobean patriarchal, patriarchal society, uh, what the 
Rit de Passages is that sons grow up, or the eldest son grows up, to replace the father. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the, the aristocratic way, and that is what Edmund plays on mm -hmm. that Gloucester has a fear of, that he yes. will be yes. eclipsed prematurely by his son. Yes. What daughters do is they grow up to pass out of the family structure, and that's what Lear is worried about, clearly anxious about, when he sets up the terms of a love test that basically make Cordelia unmarriageable. But, but you're basically saying Shakespeare does not want to preempt his, his inevitable uh, conclusion, which is Cordelia and Lear. That's right, yes, yes. Uh, it's, it's an odd reconciliation, it though, is. isn't it? Is. It's it? A I mean, it's yeah. And also, um, there's a hint at the end of the situation at the beginning that he wants his daughter to love him yeah rather than a husband, or more mm -hmm. than any husband. And indeed, France is kept off in France, isn't he? And, she, and yeah. he, they speak of, he speaks of uh, like two songbirds in a cage. Yes. But that's an amazing speech. You know, what yes. they, how will they will spend their time together exactly. in prison? And he says, in prison. They'll, they'll gossip, you know, they'll yes. talk about who's in, who's yeah. out. And then they'll take upon us the, the mystery of things yeah. as if we were God's spies. I find that a most beautiful, enigmatic phrase. Mm -hmm. Does he mean we'll take upon us the whole meaning of life? as if we were sort of divine surrogates, yeah. is that what he's saying? I think I, maybe he yeah. is, something like that. Yeah. I mean, because it's something about this, this um, he's now got his favourite daughter yeah. all to himself. Yeah. And his fantasy is there'll be nobody else, no third party, no husband, yeah. just us. And we'll and do philosophy. We'll do philosophy. Mm. But you could argue it's another sign of his mental imbalance that they're going to have these very yes. strange conversations varying yes. from tittle-tattle, you know, <laughs> yes, yeah. about court, court hierarchy to mm. uh, the nature of the universe. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I think at that point we should open it up to mm -hmm. questions. But we don't have any portable microphones, so I'm afraid you'll have to shout out your question, then I will try and uh, repeat it so that the whole audience can hear. So if hear. anyone has a question, yes, in the front row, right in the front row. Ah, that's an interesting question. Lear is categorised as mad, but other characters do extreme things. Is Lear the only one in the play who's mad? Mike? Um, well, there's cruelty all around, isn't there? I mean, there's uh, uh, Edmund's distorted view of the world, though Edmund too has been badly treated. He is badly treated in the first scene with his father. His father treats him as like a, you know, a second-rate figure and mocks him and says, you know, lightly conceived and yes. uh, this young man is a bit of a... He's, he's very dismissive of him indeed. And he's hurt and deeply wounded. And he, his, his mad cruelty develops out of that. Now, you might say he's not mad, he's just cruel, bad. But he's, he's, he's certainly disturbed in that way. And there's certainly some explanation of it. Um, Regan, Goneril, <laughs> they're very uh, violent and they're... Uh, they're, they're, uh, they move from rationality and good sense to something extreme very quickly, rather like their father does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's been a tendency since the 1960s to play this play not in any redemptive way, uh, but as um, a nihilistic vision. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you know, the question used to be, uh, you know, from Dr. Johnson, why, why does Cordelia have to die? from the 1960s, it was, why would she want to live? I mean, look, look at the society. And you know, Reagan regularly, and this production's no exception, gets quite a sexual charge mm. from the violence that mm. they are inflicting mm. 
on Gloucester. And you can argue, um, as critics have done for centuries, that characters learn from suffering, um, but the late 20th century view was there is nothing to learn from this suffering. Um, so I think the violence can be part of that. Yes. Um, I mean, sometimes it's been interpreted in biographical terms that Shakespeare was having a nervous break breakdown. I just think he's having a 20th century vision. Though Gloucester, Gloucester says, I, I stumbled, I stumbled when, when I, I saw. Yes. And I think there's also that. Can, can I just yes. pursue what you just said? I mean, it, the, the implication of your remark is that this play comes more into focus for an age, a post-1960 age, which uh, has less concrete uh, philosophy to hang on to, uh, which takes a rather nihilistic view of I think that's universe. right. And I mean, one of the things that the text does that would support our uh, late 20th century interpretation of it is it's a very harshly um, um, ungodded, irreligious mm. world. I mean, characters sometimes swear by Apollo or by Hecate, and they talk about the gods, plural. But the source play that Shakespeare's rewriting um, is a very, very pious uh, Protestant piece of work in which Lear is taking early retirement because he's going to pay attention to his soul. And characters are always dropping to their knees to pray in that play. This is not just a pagan world, it's mm. a world in which there's no gods mm. and no justice. Is, right. it, is it a 17th century end game? Ex exactly. It's, <laughs> it's it often compared to Beckett, with, with in the fact. With yeah, the parents in, in the dustbins. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a famous essay by Jan Cott which draws yeah. exactly those yeah. comparisons, isn't it, between Beckett and Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And Peter Brook, in his 1963 production, yeah. was always the first director to, to make that connection mm -hmm. between Beckett and Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. uh, the moment when Gloucester throws himself off what he thinks is the edge of mm -hmm. a cliff, you know, and is in fact just simply mm -hmm. falling a few feet. Mm -hmm. I hope that's not a spoiler, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is a you know, classic theatre of the absurd, isn't it? Anyway, that's a very um, provocative question that opens up debate. Uh, yes, I can see a hand there on the aisle. Can you shout out? The um, central plot and the subplot, um, Shakespeare's trying to draw comparisons with the um, father-daughter relationship and the father-son relationship. Is, is Shakespeare, in the, in the main plot and the subplot, drawing par direct parallels between the father-daughter relationship and the father-son relationship? Oh, sorry. Or differences. Or differences, which... Yeah, similarities or differences, mm -hmm. yes? Um, perhaps in an indirect way. Uh, I think that one of the things that's odd about this play is its structure, because it starts with um, a sort of pre-scene one, where we've got that little interlude where uh, Kent is saying, mm -hmm. who is Edmund? And Gloucester is speaking about his illegitimate son in very slighting terms. Uh, it's very nudge, nudge, wink, wink. There was good sport at his making. He's been away nine years. The horse son must be acknowledged. And what you've got is a sort of classic opening scene where you think, oh yeah, old man going to get his comeuppance. Young man, remarkably forbearing. He's a victim who'll be a hero. And in fact, it's the other way around. Immediately after that, we see King Lear make a misjudgment about daughters. And I think Shakespeare's very interested in wrong footing, not just the characters in the play, but the audience in reading the characters in the play. And he gives us almost no help. There are, there are no soliloquies to speak of in this play. I mean, Edmund's the one who's got the most um, soliloquizing relationship with the audience, but Lear never gets a to be or not to be moment. So the, the onus is on us 
to interpret the characters on stage who are thinking, what's going on here? How do we work this out? And I think that the parallel plots may be part of that, mm -hmm. but not in any easy schematized way. No, your question's a good one, and I, I would, I, my immediate answer would be to say that this, it's similar, you know, as indeed it says in the play, bad, I'm badly fathered, you're badly childed, as he say? Mm. Anyway, yes. the, the, the parallels are, are drawn as parallels, but you may be right, it may mm. be more, as much a matter of contrast. I, w I would mm. have to think about it. And actually, if I can come back on that, um, one of the things that Edmund says when he dies is, yet Edmund was beloved, uh, which is an incredible exit line. You know, it's, it's not a kind of uh, macho Lothario, mm. oh, I was contracted to these two women. It was, it's two women loved me. Um, and it's almost as if the characters in this play need more love than they have been capable of giving through five acts. Mm -hmm. And what the sort of lovelessness of the opening scene of Gloucester's attitude to Edmund and Lear's to, to his, his daughters, particularly Cordelia, shows uh, in, when he banishes her, is, is um, the sort of inchoate needs that, that cry out in this play of the child to be loved because it spirals into vengeance, mm. not just logical vengeance, immoral but logical, you know, um, Edmund wants lands, mm. but then he gets involved in the plot against Lear and Reagan gets involved in the plot to gouge out lost his eyes and it's almost like a rage against mm. the world of fathers um, fathers that haven't given these these young people what they they needed but they pay rather excessive price in Gloucester's case don't they? <laughs> too high a price, <laughs> high a price yes yeah, yeah. Um, well thank you both for your genuine psychological and textual insights into King Lear thank you both very much thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.